Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored, a podcast about banned books and whether you should read them. My name is Aoife Vretnach, historian and book nerd. If you'd like to support the show, I'm on Patreon, but it would be a lot better if you all rated and reviewed the podcast. Or tell a friend to listen. Pester them if you must. Who doesn't need more filth in their life? This episode is the first of two on the McGahran Affair, the censorship scandal that encouraged the government to change the actual law. John McGahran's book, The Dark, was banned in June 1965, kicking off a year-long discussion about censorship and its consequences. It was a debate characterised by public meetings, letters to newspapers and the odd parliamentary debate. A lot of people had a lot to say especially when it emerged that McGahran was fired from his job as a teacher because his book was banned. The dramatic consequences of censorship for McGahran personally and professionally were headline news. But it's fair to say that the book itself wasn't at the centre of the debate. So in this deep dive, I'm first going to discuss the book and then examine the fuss around the ban. And what a book it is. I have read other later McGahran novels. It's kind of hard to avoid him, really, because he was a central figure in Irish literature from the 1960s to the early 2000s. But the dark still took me by surprise. It's a bleak, scathing critique of Irish patriarchy and social ambition, but it's also compassionate, daring and funny. Reading it like a censor, it's an explosive book. Now, McGahran did not appreciate the way censors read it, so I feel like apologising to his departed soul. To be clear, there are worlds in this book, with huge potential for lots of different readings. But for the censors, the dark was an incendiary device stuffed with sexual abuse, violence, poverty, wanking, so, so much wanking, and creepy priests. As it's such a subtle, deep text, three generous people agreed to talk to me about it and you'll hear from them as I go along. Dr John Singleton works in NUI Galway and has written a PhD on McGahran. 
Dr. Anna Tikal works at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and has published on Irish literature and censorship. Dr. Ellen Schiebler teaches in Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts and has written about Oscar Wilde and James Joyce. Both Ellen and Anna are working on a new critical edition of The Dark for the US market. I had very long conversations with everyone, but I can't use them all, so the full recordings are available to subscribers on patreon.com slash censoredpod. If you're a McGaharan superfan, I'd highly recommend them. Now, choosing a relaxing or invigorating beverage to go with a book like this is not easy. Eating and drinking doesn't play an important role in the narrative, really. But since most of it is set in domestic interiors, kitchens, parlours and bedrooms, the best option is a cup of tea. McGaharan doesn't even need to say that everyone was drinking tea, because what else would you drink in 1950s Ireland? Strong black tea with milk and sugar to taste. During the particularly bleak parts, you might need two spoons of sugar. Wrap your hands around the hot mug and get comfy, because this will be a wild ride. When you open the very first page of the book, you can guess why it was banned. There on the fifth line is the word fuck spelt out in capital letters. It literally jumps off the page. But the history of that word in the text is really fascinating, as Ellen explained to me. The history of that word is pretty deep in terms of how it gets published in various places. So how it gets published in the UK edition versus how it gets published in the American edition, which is different in the first editions for both of those places. So... Uh, the the letters F-U-C-K get published out with hyphens in the UK edition, but they actually get spelled phonetically in the American edition. So it actually is like E-F-F dash, and then I don't know if it's Y-O-U, but they're spelled out phonetically. And I think from from my understanding, McGahern agreed to uh, to allow folks when they read that first page in the American edition to not immediately shudder at the F-U-C-K, um, but that was the American publisher's decision. The UK publishers, I think, uh, allowed it to go partially because he had used the word fucking in the barracks um, and, and that had gone through and been published. So I think they had assumed that maybe this this word would be okay. McGahern was obviously feeling very strongly about that word being on the first page. And so the story about the censorship board, of course, is that they assume that whoever uh, turned the book over just read the first page, saw the word and uh, submitted it. Um, so it, it actually ended up being extremely controversial. So the final decision to to use that word, it seems, is sort of like, I would think, the decision to to put some aspect of sexuality front and center. What an audacious, cheeky thing it was to write fuck on page one. It feels like McGaharan is issuing a challenge to the censors, asking if they're hard enough to ban him. Or maybe he thought he had gotten away with it once before, and the board's failure to ban the barracks was an indication of changing attitudes. Of course, McGaharan grew up in censorship Ireland. 
He was born in 1937, so his early reading life was profoundly shaped by censorship. Even though his first book wasn't actually banned, the priest in his hometown hated it so much that he had it removed from the library shelves. I wondered if McGahran felt the chilling effect of censorship, if the fear of being banned affected his writings in any way. And Ellen believes that his writing history proves that he worried about the censorship regime. I think it did affect him. I think it's one of the reasons why he pulled the text. So the history is that uh, he wrote this this book called The End or the Beginning of Love, and he took it to, to Faber and it, it made it all the way to the end. They were ready to publish it. And he pulled it um, at the last minute because he wasn't ready. And instead he published The Barracks, uh, which, you know, was a wonderful success for him. And I think, you know, that that this built confidence in him as a writer, but also I think led him to think carefully about how he was going to get whatever he wanted to say in the dark across. Uh, so it, it reads, if you know, you, you know that McGovern is heavily influenced by modernism, Irish modernism, absolutely dependent on the realist tradition. So you've got this modern yet realist overlapping um, very clearly articulated in the way that this text is written, very strategic in the way that it's crafted and the way that it's really stripped down. If you look at earlier manuscripts, they're much more verbose, um, makes sense in the craft that he did this. It does seem to me that he was trying to think about censorship in almost every move that he made when he was producing this text, putting the word fuck on the first page the way that he does says, you know, uh, go ahead and censor me uh, before you're even going to read the rest of the book, which I think is a good argument. I think it coexists with the the hope, though, that I think he may have had that he might be the one to beat it um, where others had not. And the reason I think that is just because of the many, uh, many drafts of this novel that exist and the the emotional toll that it took on him. I find it so interesting that an author who pulled his first manuscript wrote a book as challenging as The Dark just a few years later. I'm sure his confidence was boosted by the critical success that the barracks enjoyed, but maybe the censor's silence gave him courage. He had gotten away with a few fucks in his first book, so he went all out and stuck fuck on page one in the second. There was also such a difference between the original title of the draft book and the two that succeeded it. The end of the beginning of love sounds quite philosophical and maybe a bit abstract. But the barracks and the dark are very blunt titles that seem simple, but nonetheless are hard to put a direct interpretation on. This is especially true of the dark, which McGahran had called the pit in earlier drafts. If anything, the pit is even more terrifying than the dark. It makes me think of the outdoor loo that appears in chapter one as the refuge for the children after their father has beaten or terrorised them. A fetid little hut perched over a pit full of human effluent is their safe space. Jesus fucking Christ, how horrendous is that? Later on in the novel, the private closed space of a loo is the setting for sexual assault, 
when McGahran shows the depth of the horror in the pit. It's fucking grim, lads. And none of this is an accident. McGahran was an extremely careful writer. His titles meant a lot to him, as John Singleton explained to me. And McGahran is, is very, very particular about his titles, about the way he picks his titles. And I think the change... I've been fortunate enough to actually read that first um, that first book and the change of the title from the end of the beginning of Love to the Barracks is, I, I have argued is a very important moment in his, his career and that he there seems to be a change in his focus, a change in his perspective that moves from this kind of aesthetic, you know, almost Wildean title of the end or the beginning of Love and we have, you know, love, that is the title now, to the barracks, a closed um, public space, you know, a pseudo-military space, a place of oppression, a place with an incredibly fractious history in the Irish context, from which they would have been OUC barracks. Um, so that's quite a, an important turning moment, I think, in his career as an unpublished author to move from love to the barracks and then through the pit uh, and into what would become the dark. And I believe as well is that the first extracts of the dark that were published, the first few pages um, that are so infamous now at this point, were published under the title or the four-letter word, which is, of course, referring infamously to the the printing of F-U-C-K on that first page. Um, So really, you know, from the change from the end of the beginning of Love to the Barracks, through the pit, to the four-letter word, to the dark, uh, I think is, 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 we can get a sense of McGahan really uh, shaping his his own aesthetic perspective, his way his view in the world, his style, but also the way his work is going to be interpreted uh, and uh, received by an audience. It feels to me as if he was trying to be less combative, less angry by calling it the dark. On a kind of tangential note, I also thought the dark evoked the potato pit, where the family stored their harvested spuds for the winter. Potatoes have a lot of emotional baggage in Ireland. We love eating them. But we also use them as a political weapon in Anglo-Irish relations by talking about the Great Famine and the catastrophic failure of the crop. In the dark, potatoes come up a few times, And I found those occasions very memorable. When the father gifts potatoes to the brothers who run the school, young Mahoney is mortified. His father won't or can't give anything more prestigious and the young lad is dying with shame. So here the hard-earned products of the family farm are meagre, pathetic offerings compared to, say, a bottle of whiskey purchased with cash. The potato is not regarded with affection here. It's a badge of social disgrace. But the other potato incident that really struck me was when the Mahoney children helped to harvest the poppies. It begins as a family working together, but is soon another opportunity for their father to neglect and abuse them. When the rain falls and the task is clearly beyond them, he gives up, but the children are so afraid of him that they work on into the darkness, drenched to the skin. 
So the pit could refer to a filthy hole full of human shit or the potato pit to which the children are bound by fear of their violent father. Because really it's the violence of Mahony Senior that dominates the book. It's truly unforgettable. And you're not introduced to this gently by McGaharan. The horror show begins in chapter one. The book is a study of how a father could terrorise his children, but also how they tried to resist him. McGaharan shows that the children found subtle ways to fight back, but also how ridiculously difficult this task was. Mahony Sr. is a truly toxic patriarch who feels oppressed by his work and his family responsibilities. I thought it was interesting that McGaharan didn't add alcoholism to his flaws. He avoided the simple, obvious explanation that the violent man was a tortured addict. The worst character in the whole book is entirely sober throughout. Drink is not at the root of all ills after all. It makes an interesting contrast to, say, the ginger man, where you sympathise a bit with the horrible men because they've a good time drinking and partying. The censor must have found the violence of Mahony Sr. shocking. Anyone reading it would be disturbed when he spins his daughter around the kitchen by her hair. Added to that, the sly, mocking resistance of the children undermines the ideals of family love and duty that were so important to conservative Ireland. This is a family broken by their father, a man whose material lot is difficult but not insurmountable. And the full horror of patriarchal failure is that he sexually abuses young Mahoney. So we have chapter 1 and 2, where the physical and emotional abuse, and then in chapter 3, it's the sexual abuse. And this is really, really terrible. I'm going to read some of it out, but it's awful. And you love your father. I do. You'll give your father a kiss, so. The old horror, as hands were put about him, and the other face closed on his, the sharp stubble grown since the morning and the nose and the kiss, the thread of the half-dried mucus coming away from the other lips in the kiss. You don't have to worry about anything. There's no need to be afraid or cry. Your father loves you. And hands drew him closer. They began to move in caress on the back, shoving up the nightshirt, downwards lightly to the thighs, and heavily up again, the voice echoing rhythmically the movement of the hands. Fucking hell. That's really grim. And that's only a part of it. It goes on for a lot longer, but I just can't read it all out. It's awful. You know, for the last 20 years, we in Ireland have been obsessed with child abuse scandals. A lot of the new Irish literature features historic abuse, where writers unearth past pain to say something profound about Irish society today. But McGaharan wrote this in the early 60s, when apparently nobody talked about such dirty family crimes. And yet the first three chapters of The Dark chronicle physical, emotional and sexual abuse by a father against his children. It's all there, lads. It wasn't that hidden. Perhaps the real truth is that nobody cared to intervene. No one thought it was worth saving children from terrible households. 
The thing about the public reception of the dark is that nobody described it as an expose of child sex abuse. It's much more than that, of course. I don't want to reduce a deep book to one theme, but it is telling that that aspect of the book was almost ignored in the 60s. But nobody ignored the wanking. Chapter 5 opens with young Mahoney having his fifth wank of the day. I was reminded irresistibly of Portnoy's complaint, another book famous for wanking. Portnoy's complaint was a big book in Australian censorship history, while The Dark is big in Ireland. What is it about wanking and censorship that is a catalyst for censorship reform? Weird. Anyway, back to the text. I'm going to read out the beginning of chapter 5 because it's hilarious. One day she would come to me, a dream of flesh and woman, in frothing flimsiness of lace, cold silk against my hands. An ad torn from the independent by my face on the pillow, black and white of a woman rising. Her black lips open in a yawn. The breasts push out the clinging nightdress she wears. Its two thin white straps cross her naked shoulders. Her arms stretch above her head, to bear the growths of hair in both armpits. Remove superfluous hair. So that's young Mahoney's wank material, an ad for hair removal cream in the Irish Independent. It's just a sketch, not even a photograph of a woman in a nightie. Only a teenager could find lust in such an inauspicious place. I should explain the layout of the page a little because that's what makes it so funny. Remove superfluous hair is in the centre of the page, in all caps, set apart from the text around it. It absolutely shatters the mood of focused intensity to hilarious effect. There's an extra layer of comedy because we now know that Archbishop McQuaid hated underwear ads. He examined them with a magnifying glass to check that there was no hint of a pubic bone. I don't know if McGaharan knew this when he wrote the book. Maybe it was part of the gossip mill in Dublin at the time. But he was certainly pulling the piss out of the Playboy riots of 1907. Singh's play, The Playboy of the Western World, mentioned shifts or slips, and this outraged the audience. Who knew women's underwear could be so powerful? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But in general, Mahoney doesn't find masturbation to be ridiculous or funny. He is mostly tortured by thoughts of sin and pollution. This is his post-orgasmic haze from chapter 5. The pulsing dies away, a last gentle fluttering, and I can lie quiet. The day of the room returns, red shelves with the books and the black wooden crucifix, the torn piece of newspaper on the pillow. Everything is dead as dirt. It is as easy to turn over. I'd committed five sins since morning. His release gives him more self-disgust than relaxation. And at the time, wanking was called self-abuse, which is just a disgusting phrase. Mahoney believes he's committing a sin. It doesn't stop him, because he's normal, but he is haunted by his physical desire. So why the fuck would this bother the censors? It seems like a conservative wet dream, a young fella whose masturbatory habits make him disgusted. And we do know that the wanking definitely upset them. Members of the board claimed informally that masturbation was the reason it was banned. I think they were fibbing. It was easy to complain about the masturbation because there's a lot of it. But the sex abuse is morally as bad and legally much worse. Censors like to use sex as an excuse to ban books. But the really subversive stuff in McGahern's book is the exploration of social institutions like the Roman Catholic Church. In later life, McGahran said that a society gets the politicians and the church it deserves. What then of the Irish Catholic Church in this novel? It's not an easy question to answer. I felt young Mahoney was ambivalent about the church as an institution and the role of faith in his daily life. When I asked Anna and Ellen this question, they offered interesting contrasting readings. Um, but McGovern himself, in his memoir, uh, describes Catholicism as abusive. Um, he does say, as we can all see, that it was the sort of one and only form of community that a lot of folks had in the rural Ireland that he's depicting in the novel. And in that way, it was essential. And I think he saw Catholicism as essential. There wasn't a way, I don't think, to read it differently. But I think that that essential role that the church played was still dubious. And I think that, you know, the, the novel shows this. I'm, I'm always struck uh, by readings of the text that come away feeling like it is um, not that harsh of a criticism of the church and maybe not that harsh of a criticism of the patriarchal figure, because when I read it, and again, I'm, I'm also very interested in the way that, you know, identity positions us as readers. So this could be my identity, but when I read it, it is scathing. It's scathing both on the criticism of the church and scathing on the criticism of the family. 
there is so much duality in his writing that for me, the dark comes across spiritually in a different way than I think it does for Ellen. Um, I think that one of the things that McGahern does in a lot of his work is while he is not, he never stops critiquing the church as an institution, but I think he is very interested in the power of the sacred and the power of ritual and the power of sacred spaces to create a sort of aperture in everyday life that I see this happening in the dark as well. And so for me, there is sort of like the relationship, but it is a parallel actually. I think it's a deliberate parallel between the relationship between young Mahoney and his father and young Mahoney and the church. While they're, they are both presented as these horrifically toxic situations, there is something deeply appealing in the church and something about the love and his for his father that he can't cancel out that I think is a is a deliberate parallel structure there and so for me I don't think that McGahern would have an easy time of dismissing the pull of the sacred even though um he is quite razor sharp in condemning the impact of the church as a structure. You see, it's kind of complicated. It can be hard to interpret these texts sometimes. I'm not going to adjudicate on this because I can't decide either. I think McGahran sees the power of religion very clearly and cannot portray it in black or white terms. Obviously, this calculated ambiguity is pretty threatening to a conservative Catholic viewpoint which is the very definition of the censorship system. If you remember way back in season one, I covered a book called The Awful Adventures of Maria Monk. This 19th century anti-Catholic propaganda was banned in Ireland in 1964, just a year before McGahran was censored. If the board could take offence at such historic anti-Catholic propaganda, then McGahran's questioning of faith would definitely unnerve them. But naturally, he didn't just forensically examine faith through the interior life of young Mahoney. He also created a priest of extremely dubious morals in Father Gerald. A cousin of Mahoney Sr., Father Gerald is a sort of patron to the family. He finds the oldest girl, Joan, a job and offers young Mahoney a holiday in his parochial house. When the young fella arrives, he learns an unusual fact about Father Gerald. He does not have a housekeeper, as is customary. A 16-year-old boy does the housework and the cooking for him. I'm going to read the part from chapter 11 where the priest explains this odd arrangement. I was driven crazy at the time with an old harridan of a priest's housekeeper who was trying at the time to run me and the parish as well as the house. So I suggested to the mother that he should come to me until he is 18. I'll try to use what influence I have to get him placed in a good hotel then. It's a career with enormous opportunity these days, so everyone is quite happy with the arrangement. I mean, it's not a bad explanation, but you can't help feeling this whole thing is creepy as fuck. And readers at the time did notice it. 
the editorial writer of the Western People newspaper, wrote that the dark, quote, depicts more by insinuation than outright comment a soliciting priest with a boy housekeeper, unquote. McGowan may have been subtle, but the readers of the time were not that obtuse. After this uneasy introduction to Father Gerald's house, it gets much worse for young Mahoney. On his first sleepless night, the priest visits his room and climbs into his bed. And this is from chapter 12, when Father Gerald arrives in young Mahoney's room. You're not asleep? It was the priest's voice. Some of the terror broke. You let yourself back in your arms again. No. There was relief, but soon suspicion grew in place of the terror. What could the priest want in the room at this hour? The things that have to happen. I heard you restless. I couldn't sleep either, so I thought it might be a good time for us to talk. He wore a striped shirt and pyjamas, blue stripes and grey flannel it seemed when he moved into the moonlight to draw back a corner of the bedclothes. You don't mind, do you? It's easier to talk this way, and even in the summer the middle of the night gets cold. No, father, I don't mind. What else was there to say, and move far out to the other edge of the bed, even then his feet touching you as they went down, the bodies lay side by side in the single bed. You find it hard to sleep? I often do. It's the worst of all, I often think, to be sleepless at night, he said and you stiffened when his arm went about your shoulder. Was this to be another of the midnight horrors with your father? His hand closed on your arm. You wanted to curse or wrench yourself free, but you had to lie stiff as a board, stare straight ahead at the wall, afraid before anything of meeting the eyes you knew were searching your face. Oh my God. So horrible. It's just terrible. Thankfully, there's no repeat of the abuse Mahoney suffered at the hands of his father, but it's all so gross. Did McGahorin really think he could get away with this? Any suggestion the Catholic priests weren't sainted was viewed with extreme suspicion by the censors of books and films in Ireland. To be honest, it's not a wonder the dark was banned. It's a wonder that McGahorin had the balls to write and publish it. Of course, all this transgressive content is there for a purpose. He isn't just trying to air Irish society's dirty linen in public, forcing people to confront the ugliness hidden behind closed doors. This story of a young man's coming of age is told in such a way that it challenges nearly everything Irish society held sacred. As John explains, this story about growing up in rural Ireland offered a profound critique of Irish social mores. Outside of really, really disturbing uh, sexual violence and sexual imagery of the book, it is quite subversive in the way that the young boy, the young man, he comes of age. It is first and foremost a rejection of his father, who is who's cast in the image of this uh, almost Kavanaugh-esque, you know, native farmer. He says at one point, you know, the son, his son, he'll die like me, 
in this field and he'd be buried at the end of the road. So first of all, he rejects the the family, his father and the farm, which is a really important moment. And it's a turning away from that idea of, you know, the noble peasant and comely maidens and that. Then there's the vocation of the priesthood. He's going to be, you know, please his mother and go to the priesthood. We get more sexual violence. He rejects that. He moves away from the priesthood. And then he's going to become a teacher. Um, or go to university, the second vocation. And ultimately that turns out to be a disastrous dream as well. So he's failed in the book by the kind of the three pillars of Irish identity at this point, which is, you know, the farm, the land, his family, the church and, and education. It's it's a recasting of Stephen Daedalus's faith, fatherland um, and, and his religion or and, and it's a recasting of that in a, in a kind of more modern setting. So he rejects all those and he rejects that kind of Celtic twilight, you know, the Yeatsian idea that I will arise and go west to Inish Free. He doesn't. He leaves the west of Ireland and goes to the corrupt West Britain, the urban capital, in search of women and an income. Uh, so it's about as kind of you know, crass materialistic as you can get. He rejects all the the lofty ideals that the state was founded on. And he says, no, I'm jacking that. I'm going in search of women and money. And and it, it kind of forces an audience in 1965 when it's published to confront the harsh reality that that, you know, despite the discourse they've been fed of aristocratic peasantry and, and the primacy of religion, is that at this time, certainly in the previous decade, uh, decade that would be the reality for most people is that they would have to leave the family you know maybe couldn't get into the, the priesthood of the christian brothers couldn't get married so they went they went east and they went to the cities looking for jobs uh, and looking for marriage and family life so it, it it's absolutely a a coming of age novel and, and a building roman and the sense that you have to reject the received formulas of the past. McGavran slaughtered some sacred cows with this book, but his economical and subtle prose has stood the test of time. And now that we've thoroughly explored all the deep layered meanings of the text, let's boil it all down to a single, slightly silly exercise. Censorship bingo. I mean, I say silly, but it's my favourite part of the podcast. And we begin, as usual, with breasts. Yes, boobs are mentioned through the nighty, And there's also a particularly memorable mention of thighs as a girl is cycling past Mahoney. Shades of Flan O'Brien and the third policeman, even though it wasn't actually published by then. Obviously, the puns and allusions to riding and bicycles were just too delicious for authors to ignore in the 50s and 60s. Bestiality, no, not at all. Sex work, no way. Racism, nope. Drugs, no, not even alcohol, strangely enough. Politics, no, I don't think so. Swearing, well, yes, fuck is on the first page, but in general, there isn't a lot of bad language in the book. Infidelity, yes, the greengrocer Ryan is definitely not faithful to his wife. Crime, oh yes, lots of crime. Multiple abuses, violence, yeah, all the crime. Genitalia. Well, this is a difficult one. 
because he doesn't actually say cock. It's not as explicit about the male member as Portnoy's complaint by Philip Roth. But what else is he putting the sock on, in fairness? So yeah, we got to take that one. Abortion. No, no orgies. Sexual assault, for definite. You could take that with bells on. Extramarital pregnancy. No, definitely not. Masturbation. Well, yeah, wanktastic. Sex toys. No, definitely not. Feminism. No. Divorce. No. Contraception. No way. Menstruation. Yes, it is mentioned when one of his sisters has her first period and her father is particularly violent towards her as a result. Ugh, so gross. Blasphemy. If we take an extreme Catholic viewpoint, anything that slanders the church as an institution is blasphemy. So we could take that. The depiction of Father Gerald is particularly challenging in the context of an extremely observant Catholic Ireland. Oral sex. No. Graphic violence. The first chapter might break your heart. It's really something else. Queer content. In an interesting aside, Father Gerald mentions gay friendships between men and priests that he knew. Now, it could be the non-sexual use of the word gay, but it seems unlikely because McGaharan is so careful about what he writes and so widely read. Even if gay isn't used in Ireland of that time, maybe he knew its other meaning. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and tick that one. So the Dark by John McGaharan scores 11 out of 25, which is pretty good, actually. I don't have a bingo square for sheer brass neck, but McGaharan was extremely daring to write this book at this time. If I could give him extra points for having the cheek, face and eyes to write such a bold book, I would. And it's a book we should all be reading. I have the feeling it's not very widely read right now. In recently published Irish literature, there's no sense of dialogue with this book with its groundbreaking attempts to deal with violence and dysfunction within families. So yes, you should read it. It's not a big book in size, but the depth and breadth of it are really incredible. Also, McGaharan writes so beautifully. It's unspeakably good. I'm going to read a piece that isn't sex or that isn't anything smutty, just to show you how remarkable a stylist he was. This is from chapter 14, where young Mahony is sitting in a beautiful orchard on a sunny day, trying to work out what life would be like as a priest, if he decided to train as one. In these houses priests lived. You'd be alone in one of them one day too, idling through the pages of books, reading the office as you walked between the laurels. Girls in summer dresses would stroll past free under the sycamores, you could go to the sick rooms to comfort the defeated and the dying. People would come to the door to have masses said for their wishes and their dead. They'd need certificates of birth and marriage, letters of freedom. It was summer now. It would be hardly different with newspapers and whiskey, watching the pain of the leaves fall and the rain gather to drip the long evenings from the eaves. It's just beautiful. Even though the subject matter can be challenging, the style and the writing is so worth reading.
But I'm not finished with McGahern yet. The next episode will cover the public discussion around the ban and how it helped to change the law. More importantly, I'm going to try and understand whether McGahern intended to cause such a fuss. He always wanted to be seen as a European writer. His work was heavily influenced by European writers, as well as the obvious American and British greats. But when the dark was banned, this very Irish controversy made international headlines. How did this scandal affect his life and work? What happens when an author and their work becomes notorious? I think the McGahern affair is a fascinating example of the personal effects of a political scandal on an artist. See you next time for part two, but till then, wallow in your impure thoughts. They're great company. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.